came home, <laughs> packed up, didn't have a job, didn't have a home, had lost one parent, <laughs> was about to lose the second parent, hadn't had a successful relationship in my entire adult life. And I was like, I'm doing nothing for a year. Like, I am going to live at the family farm and whatever happens with mom, be with her and just reset. And I was terrified because I thought that I didn't have an identity if I didn't have a job. Today's guest is Sarah Gormley. Sarah is the owner and founder of Sarah Gormley Gallery, contemporary art gallery that operates from the belief that original art can be a source of joy for everyone. She opened the gallery in 2019, 25 years after her grandmother gifted Sarah with her first piece of art when she graduated from DePaul University. Before she opened her gallery, she was a marketing executive whose career included both agency work and in-house roles with global brands, including IMAX, Martha Stewart, Girl Scouts of the USA, and Adobe. Sarah and I enter into a great conversation about her journey, how important therapy was for her and finding her true passion in art and opening the gallery. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Let's get started. So Sarah Gormley is today's guest on the Gravity Podcast. And Sarah, it's great to have a chance to get to know you and fire away, as you said, learn about your life and, and what you're up to and and how that might you know be important for our audience to hear. All right. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Good. So tell me, just starting at the beginning, you know, where are you from? Tell me a little bit about your early life, your, yeah. your childhood, your family, you know, that that portion of, of your journey. All right. Well, I grew up outside of Zanesville, Ohio, um, in Chandlersville, on this big, beautiful farm and different time. No locks on the doors, left cars in the driveway with the keys in them in case the neighbor needed to borrow a truck. I mean, like, unbelievable. And kind of had this idyllic childhood. I mean, we would run out the door in the summer and come home at dusk. And, you know, it, it sounds so unbelievable by today's standards, but really was pretty wonderful. And so my challenge was I didn't really see myself as a farm girl. My parents maybe made the mistake of taking me to New York City when I was, I don't know, eight or nine. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's kind of where I'm supposed to be. Mm. So well, let's let me hop in there because that's yeah. interesting to me. I always get intrigued when I hear these, you know, what I call flashes of insight that, you know, in hindsight, you know, you can really connect dots. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tell me, A, what was it like to feel like you weren't a farm girl? And and did you know that prior to seeing New York City? And then tell me more about what it was like that like really hit you that maybe there was something else out there in the world. Well, I think it was a, a couple of things. And clearly with hindsight and growth, we can look back and be like, oh, that's what was really going on. So... I, at a young age, sort of became an achiever. I learned pretty quickly, like, oh, if you succeed, you get rewards for that, like mm -hmm. the gold stars. And so mm -hmm. 
I think even then I associated big cities and even I would go so far as to say kind of corporate success as something other, right? So Mm. I started thinking, well, I need to go do that to be successful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not sure I was thinking that at age eight, but I, I knew there was this other world out there. And so I immediately started assuming wildly incorrectly that it was better. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I'm glad you, you said that because it paints a little bit more of a clearer picture. And I, I think it's really important for people to hear this, that it wasn't about the energy or the maybe, you know, I assumed even the artistic nature, creativity, it was about achievement and kind of like seeing something around there at that point. There was was glamour. I mean, there was the glamour and what you saw in movies. And, you know, at the Mm -hmm. time there weren't a lot of movies about Chandlersville, Ohio, but there were plenty of movies about New York City. So there was that. But the other thing was happening simultaneously. And so now after a whole bunch of therapy, <laughs> when yeah. I look back, you know, the story, <laughs> the story becomes a slightly different story. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it, you're, it, getting, you're getting all the stuff. You're yeah, and that's the- good. That's what I want because that's the real stuff. That's the truth. And, and it's true for so many people and it's not often talked about. So nothing wrong at a young age, especially having some sort of, you know, achievement aspirations, right? But I am curious, if I can, in having done the work that you've done, (laughs) tell me a little bit about where the achieving part comes from. Well, there's family stuff and there's society stuff. And I was sort of like, well, I'm going to nail this thing. I, you just hear, this is, you know, I I was like, I need to be smart and skinny and successful. Yeah. the world is my oyster. I do those yeah. things. Here we go. So right. I just kind of set out and I was like, well, check, check, check. Yeah. Old stars. Yeah. And listen, it's not like I had it all figured out at age 24. It took me all the way up to age 45. Yeah. Right. So that's like, and so. Sure. <laughs> because you, you start achieving and you do get the rewards, you get the raises, you get the promotions, and yeah, and you get the nicer apartments. Sure, <laughs> sure. Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna get to forty five and beyond, but like, <laughs> I just want you to know part of the reason why I'm intrigued with this and kind of teasing this out of you is because it's pretty well documented at this point. I have a similar story. I know, and the point really in in sharing these conversations is so do a lot of people. And just because you hit 45 doesn't mean that you recognize what's running or you do something about it even more. So, you know, I think it's important to kind of get these parts of the story into the, into the light so that others, you know, again, can be inspired to, to do the same work you've done. Right. And I was just kind of on the path. I was valedictorian. I went to a great liberal arts school and succeeded and had scholarships. I went to the University of Chicago Business School. Mm. And, you know, I was in Chicago for five years and then New York and Mm. started working at agencies and just set goals for myself and would just keep climbing. Mm -hmm. And I was 
frankly, pretty good at it. Yeah. Well, so this is the thing, right? So it does become a bit of a flywheel where you're like achievement, validation, right? Put it back out there higher level of achievement, more validation. You can, it, it can be society will tell you, yeah. right? People will tell you, Hey, you're doing great. Right. You're, you're you know, killing it. Like, you're killing it. Yeah. Right. So you're like, Oh, I'm killing it. I guess I'll keep killing it. And how else could I kill it? And because eventually the payoff will come, right? I'm doing all the things. And that's right. where my frustration started of late twenties, even in my thirties. And I'm like, well, hold on. Where is this? I hate to say the word happiness because it's so loaded, but I wasn't fulfilled mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, well, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I would switch companies mm-hmm. thinking it was the brand. And I had great experiences. I worked at agencies, but then I went in-house. I worked at IMAX. Mm-hmm. I worked at Martha Stewart. I ended mm-hmm. up at Adobe. And I worked with brilliant people. And Mm -hmm. some of the coolest colleagues. And yet I was like. (laughs) Yeah. I want to back up a little bit and have you tell me a little bit more. You said, you know, you're AJ, you're in New York and there was the glamour. And it sounds to me like as you've moved through those early parts of your career, that there were aspects of creativity. Tell me a little bit more about the period of time, maybe high school into college, where the part of you that was interested in maybe something other than just straight achievement Mm -hmm. or business was present and and how that did find its way in to, to some degree if it did. Yes. So I um, was really fortunate, even in high school, I had an English teacher who had a PhD and was really drawn to literature and poetry. I've always been a writer. And so went to undergrad and was an English lit major and still was writing poetry. And, but I guess I was just like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know that I can have a career. Those people mm-hmm. <laughs> don't don't get all the gold stars and the raises. Right. Um, One thing that happened, which we'll come back to this, was when I graduated from undergrad, my grandmother came to my graduation and one of my classmates was a studio arts major, Matt Wentz. And she had asked me what I wanted for a graduation gift. And I wanted this painting he had Mm. done. And it was the first piece of art I've ever owned. And in that moment, he happened to be in the art center with his parents. It was the first painting he ever sold. And I was like, oh, that's magic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love this painting so much. He felt so passionately about it that he had to paint it. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it. And I went off to Chicago and I, there was an auction house called Leslie Hindman at the time. And I was like, I wonder, what if I just tried to start some sort of little gallery? But there was just no way to do it for me at the time financially. Mm-hmm. And even then I knew like people who work at galleries, unless you own it, like you're not making any money. Like mm-hmm. I just, I, I had that tension between it, mm-hmm. but it was there. So, and then in my corporate life, I always tried to find roles that were both analytical and corporate, but with creative elements, mm-hmm. the, the branding. So I, that's, I, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. That's how I like satisfied that creative need. 
Yeah. What I'm hearing is pretty common. I mean, I've seen this in my own kids as they start to contemplate what they want to study and and how that might lead to a career or might not lead to a career. There's so much emphasis. You know, I felt this way when I wanted to study psychology and or architecture. It was like, well, those are interesting professions and things I might be passionate about, but how am I going to make a living, you know? And how, not just am I going to make a living, I want to, I want like big things. I want nice have... things. Right, right. So <laughs> that often is a point of friction. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's no right or wrong answer there because in my own case, as I've returned to things like psychology and arts and architecture the things that I truly love, I'm glad that I can do that from the place that I'm at. So I don't regret it, but I do wonder, well, what would have happened had I gone in a little bit more of a straight line? And so I'm kind of curious in your case, how you look at that. You know, How do you look at the kind of the windy road that got you back to where you're at? Oh, First of all, like I could never have predicted it, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have any regrets because it all the stuff, even the bad stuff, got me here. And totally candidly, um, the sort of the corporate career literally afforded me the opportunity to open an art gallery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the art gallery business is wildly unpredictable and so I have gained some financial security from those long years and hours. And so I appreciate it from a very mm. pragmatic standpoint, but I also appreciate it, Brett, because the more years and the more time I invested in something that wasn't feeding my soul pushed me to change. I mean, maybe if I had had something that was more satisfying, I wouldn't have then ended up in 10 years of therapy. (laughs) Yeah. You never know. I understand. I agree. It's sort of, you know, I've kind of decided that it's perfect for what it is and what it's not and no regrets. (laughs) But then it gets a little tricky because oftentimes, whether it be my own kids or others that are maybe earlier in the journey asking questions, it's like, well, I'm not exactly sure which comes first. I want to tell people go direct and mm-hmm. follow that passion and trust that thing that you know is really alive in you deep down and don't worry about the money. And I believe ultimately that's right, but way easier for me to say now, now <laughs> right? I agree. And and I have, um, she won't watch this so I can talk about her. I have a niece who just graduated and she is more passionate about literature than I ever was, right? So I don't know that I had enough, but like I see it in her and it's like Milton. I'm like, oh my God. But like, mm-hmm. I, I keep saying to her and encouraging her, if you know that now, it is such a gift. I didn't really know what I was quote unquote passionate about. I just knew I needed to pay my bills and go down a path. But with her, which I'm seeing her already in this struggle, the trade-offs. And I'm like, Holly, I shouldn't say that, but Holly, if you pursue a PhD and comparative lit, like you're going to be a phenomenal professor. You're Mm going to be 
fulfilled. You're going to find other avenues. But I didn't have that same degree. It wasn't like I felt like I was denying myself. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? I think that's important yeah. to be clear about. I just, mm-hmm. it was like, this is what I want to do, but I'm not doing that. Yeah. I well, what I thought I was supposed to do. Sure. Yes. I know that feeling. And it often is like an energetic thing that you're really unconscious to. It's like Mm -hmm. the conditioning of what you're supposed to do is so strong that you kind of don't give enough room for the thing that, you know, is that kind of flash of insight, right? I'm not sure. Some people know, like I've interviewed people and recently I interviewed Amy Acton and she was like, I wanted to be a doctor from like age six, you know? (laughs) And so I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But I think for a lot of us, it's like a little ping. It's something itchy and kind of in there and, and you don't let it have room to come up because the all the reasons why no right yeah. but i'm also curious if you think that's different today because you see a lot of academics or i'm thinking like Brene Brown who was like a researcher mm-hmm. right there's there seems to be more room with today's media platforms to be able to actually make money doing Things like, I don't know, Young Pueblo, like poetry is something that is a lot more marketable maybe today, you know? Like, I don't know, maybe it's a little easier to go after those things in today's time. I don't know, maybe not. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. It's tough to make a living as a writer, but I hope so. I mean, there's certainly more avenues and channels to get your voice out there. Whether you're able to connect that to revenue, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Tell me, Sarah, you know, you've mentioned therapy and can you just elaborate on really what happens that you decide to enter into therapy? Where are you in your life where you're like, you know what? I need help. I'm going to, you know, enter into therapy. And can I just say that I think you and I could talk about this for like four hours. The mm-hmm. people who aren't in therapy are like, oh my God, shut up about your therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, I don't yes, about your yes. And I don't yeah. want to hear about your therapy. And yeah. I'm like, but it's so amazing. So Yeah, um, yeah. I know people that are in therapy that are like, shut up about your therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the short answer is I was in so much pain, mm-hmm. I didn't know what else to do. Mm. And I mean, because on paper, right? I would, I had everything. I had fam, fam, wonderful family, friends, a great job. I was smart and skinny and successful, and living in New York City. I mean, like, what? What? Why are you sad? Right? I mean, and I said that to myself, but I couldn't figure it out, and I was really frustrated. I mean, I just was like, I cannot. I was forty years old. I was like, I cannot do this for 40 more years. And so, and I was terrified. You know why? Because I was terrified that I was going to like start therapy and the therapist would be like, well, this is just life. Mm. This is it. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I was almost like, what if this doesn't help? What if it... So I don't know if that's a common denominator for people who 
start and commit and do the work, but I was pretty miserable. And now, of course, I'm like, everybody should be in therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why did Mm -hmm. I wait so long? Mm. Yeah, and maybe you can just elaborate a little bit on the experience of therapy and kind of how it worked and the time that it took and what happened while you were in the process of working on it and still stuck in worlds. At what point do you make the jump? Give me a little more background there. Well, two things. I had first reached out to a therapist probably when I was maybe 30-ish. And we just didn't click. We didn't connect. In fact, he forgot my name on my like third session. I'm like, no, this isn't working. But I wasn't ready either, right? I was still like, well, if I just get the right job, meet the right man, something will shift. So 10 years later, I was like, oh yeah. And so I don't know, it's hard to describe the process. But first of all, the first session, all I did was to sit and cry. And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. this is great. I'm just going to sit and cry and pay this man $200 an hour. Mm -hmm. And then my therapist, Youngian. And so he very slowly helped me start talking about experiences and expectations and my experience growing up in my family, the things that are distinctly about me and the way I respond to things in the world. And, and in fact, I was such a control freak that I told him, I set a deadline for myself. I'm like, this is what I'd like to work on. I want to do this. And so we worked on it. And at the end, I think of the first two years or three years, I'm like, okay, I've done what I needed to do. Thank you. I'm off to San Francisco to go work at Adobe. (laughs) And then I get out there and I was like, and then my father passed away. And then I was like, oh no, like I haven't, I'm just started. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that helps, but it's, Mm -hmm. um, the process is not a straight line. The process is more like you dip in, you come back up, you learn a little bit, you revisit a topic. You're like, oh, I see a pattern there. Yeah, I, I see how I was treating myself about that. How do we? Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's interesting because kind of, it's no wonder people think it's like mumbo jumbo. It's really hard to, to describe the methodology, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, and what. I think happens is we apply all of that same conditioning and thinking to therapy, which is like, well, we better get it right and it should be working and it should take a finite period of time. And then, you know, we'll get the reward. <laughs> you know, and it's like, wait a minute, you're just oh, doing no. it over here now, you know? I know? But I'm still me. I mean, right? I'm still with my therapist. I'm like, ooh, listen to what I did. It wasn't that good. Mm. Like, I'm like, I gave myself, oh, yeah. I still grade myself, which makes him laugh because I try to make him laugh because I'm a people pleaser. But. Yeah. Oh, I had a therapist who I just revered for many, many years. Norman Shubb. He was really well loved or hated, actually. <laughs> and he was sort of polarizing, but I loved him. And I realized when he passed away that I loved him so much, I respected and admired him so much that I didn't really want to show all of myself to him, Uh, you know? And it was like an interesting mm. thing where I was like trying to impress my therapist. Yes, exactly. There I was again, trying to look good and be the good one and at a place where, you know, you're supposed to do the exact opposite. Gold star. Good job, Brett. Yeah, and I think, 
you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is the importance of being in the world and taking action while you are far from figuring it out, far from figured it out. That that is in fact how you figure it out. You go out, you touch the stove, ouch, you come back, you talk about it, you learn, you integrate. But the journey that you went on that had you in pain Mm -hmm. and had you knowing just what you didn't want for yourself really was informative so that you could do the work that you did to find and make sure you don't touch those stoves again. Yeah, and I also think there's an element. I mean, this sounds so... You kind of, on some level, no matter how buried and self-loathing and all of this shit you kind of have to believe that like you're worth it. Yeah. I am not, I was like, I am not spending 40 more years feeling this way. I'm just, I'm not, I can't. And Mm. so I think, unfortunately, I think for some people who might be in pain and if they're listening, you're worth it. Like, yeah. Invest the time in yourself to feel better and be more fulfilled. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. No, I think that's great. It's it, That's said very well. And maybe you could explain, aside from therapy, how do you then go on to invest in yourself and take that sense of worth and really step into it? Oh, well, so this back to sort of my timeline and how I ended up with an art gallery in Columbus. I mean... So I'm out in San Francisco working at Adobe and realizing this was a mistake. I should not have moved across the country to take another job, trying to climb the corporate ladder, flying all over the world, big teams, you know, all the stuff. Amazing company, by the way. So my father passes away, which wasn't wildly unexpected. He had been sick for a while. And then the next year, my mom's cancer comes back. So end of 2017, we find out in essence that she's likely dying of cancer. And I was like, what in the fuck? Sorry, this is it. And I was about to have some sort of a breakdown at work anyway. And so I'm like, I'm going home. Came home, (laughs) packed up, didn't have a job, didn't have a home, had lost one parent, (laughs) was about to lose The second parent hadn't had a successful relationship in my entire adult life. And I was like, I'm doing nothing for a year. Like, I am going to live at the family farm and whatever happens with mom, be with her and just reset. And I was terrified. Because I thought that I didn't have an identity if I didn't have a job. I mean, I didn't think I would have anything to talk about if I wasn't bitching about work. (laughs) So that whole, like, I mean, I won't want to call it like the lowest low. There were some good things going on. And I was really lucky that I could come home and be with my mom. And my siblings were there too. I mean, so it was, you know, it was all of us. But for me, it was an incredible opportunity to spend those last months with her. But I was a pretty, it's a pretty low point to be 45 years old and be like, oh, here I am (laughs) back Mm -hmm. in Ohio. (laughs) So that, I had nothing to lose, right? And then, lo and behold, I start dating this wonderful man. I 
moved to Columbus. Somebody hears that I'm thinking about opening a pop-up gallery, the wood companies. They're like, well, you should see this space. I'm like, oh, I'm opening an art gallery. I mean, I don't like, I didn't, it was mm. the least planned out anything Yeah, in my but- entire life because I took away the expectations that I put on myself. I wanted to blame society or my family, you know, like, but I was the one who was driving all of that. Sorry, that's a long answer, but. No, it's 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 great. It's important. You know, I think it's interesting. The space, the pause. I've done that myself. I took a sabbatical last year for three months. COVID did that for a lot of us. I've been reading actually Radical Acceptance uh-huh. by uh, Tara Branch. And uh, it's, you know, in the Buddhist tradition to pause, right? Whether that be a breath or a sabbatical or, you know, a year, a minute, a day, a week, whatever, the pause. And I think it's misunderstood a bit. The pause sometimes people think is about catching your breath or stepping away, getting some space. And it is all of those things. But what is missed is that if you don't create space, the things that you want to show up in your life don't have any room. There's no room. And when you took that time away, and sometimes you're forced to do it. Sometimes it's a pain, a rock bottom an illness, a family member, sometimes life will make you pause. Mm -hmm. But you at least took the time to truly allow for new things to show up in your life. And it's not a coincidence that the things that you wanted, uh, a great relationship, an art gallery, right? Like, And, And I will tell you, I try, I mentor several people, still former colleagues and other friends and people have asked me, how did this happen? Like, how did, how did you get this? And there isn't a simple answer, but what you and I both know and probably agree upon is none of this would have happened without therapy. None of it. I would be somewhere working. I would be on a call, getting a call from a CEO or the CMO and on a plane and scrambling and stressed. And now I'm going down to my gallery after this call and hopefully have lunch with this wonderful man I love and live in this house in the short North. I mean, it's, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that my life has changed in such a positive way. The only thing I know for sure is that none of it would have happened without doing the work of therapy. Yeah. Well, that's really good to emphasize. And it's great to hear, you know, you were at a spot where you said, I can't live like this, this feeling. And you did something about it. And now you have the feeling of a life you love. Yeah, I guess it's not perfect. Nothing's perfect. But to know that you can change. You can change the trajectory of your life and it's hopeful. Like that's my whole thing. It's like, oh my God, like I, I I can't, I still can't believe it. (laughs) And I feel so lucky, but it's not all just luck, right? It's, It's having this something that says, you know what? You better figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. And really listening to that something and, and then acting. So tell me, you 
get approached about this pop-up gallery. Talk a little bit about the gallery, the path towards where you are today, and share with people more about the experience of starting a gallery, owning a gallery, and maybe your gallery in particular. I will. I love to talk about the gallery. So I was moved up to Columbus, up to, moved over from the farm, and I was doing some consulting, some marketing consulting, and in my head, I still, this idea of an art gallery was bouncing around and I'm a businesswoman. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to just decide and take a small business loan. And I'll just, I'll try to find the least expensive way to test whether it will work. And <clears throat> so opened up and, you know, even for a pop-up, I'm like, well, I need a website. I need a logo. And again, I'm a marketer. I didn't do any research. And I, I, let me pause for a second. Sometimes when I talk about it, it sounds a little too flip, like, oh, no big deal. You know, I'm fairly thoughtful about things, but I allowed myself for the first time in my career to not know. And I allowed myself to try something knowing it might fail. And the next thing I knew, I had a logo and a website. And in my head, I'm like, this isn't a three-month experiment. You at least have to try for a year, Sarah. Okay. Tell me, I want to get in there on the not knowing piece and allowing yourself to be okay with that because you come from high achiever, look good, right? No failure, not an option. And you've done this therapy work now. And yet there you are with the not knowing and faced with the possibility that it might fail and you do it anyway. So what's under that? What allows you to really do it anyway this time? Well, I'm not probably a natural entrepreneur because of all the corporate history. You know, I like to know what the outcomes are and and do the research and projections. But I knew that there was no way to have certainty with an art gallery with my name on it. But I knew I wanted to do it on my own. So that, that was the tension. I'm like, well, you can't have both. <laughs> you can't have a guaranteed paycheck and have a gallery that has your name on it. Like that, that doesn't work. So try it. And, and I knew the only thing I knew is that any success was going to be highly correlated to hustle. And so I just, I really started hustling. And I will tell you that Columbus, Ohio gets a lot of, credit for my success. There is no other place that I could have done this with the support of other gallerists and art buyers and artists. Duff Lindsay, Michelle Brandt, Sharon Weiss, Rebecca Ebel. Like I met with all of them beforehand and all of them said, go for it. We mm. won't know if you don't try. Mm. And there's so much talent here artistically. So I just started networking and it's a it's a city that compared to San Francisco, Chicago and New York not in that order but it is easier to meet people some even perceived competitors who are supportive and encouraging mm-hmm. and i don't know if that's like the midwestern nice i don't know but i mean people genuinely wanted to try to help me succeed and i do not discount that at all um, yeah I think it is discounted still by a lot of people 
who take it for granted in Columbus. I think that I've had the same experience where people just were so willing to meet and share and help and cheer you on. And I don't think that's the case in most places. And it really is something special. I wish we could promote that a little bit more as a city because if you are looking to start something and you have a good idea and you're willing to hustle, people will rally around you here. Absolutely. And it's fun. I mean, it's since it's like, it's the, I always say in particular about the art market here, like let's grow the pie for all of us. Yeah, for sure. More people buying art at all levels. Yeah. And so, you know, my gallery is really based on the thesis that art can be a source of joy for everyone, first time buyers, as well as established collectors. And, you know, from a business strategy, it's a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. But you want to hone in on a particular market, be the best in class in that vertical or that space, right? And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I want my gallery to be welcoming and open to people that might previously be intimidated by galleries. And I want to have a caliber of art that also big time buyers are at least I'm on their radar. Yeah. And that's kind of where I am in my evolution. And I love it. You know, yeah. it, it is, it's hard. I'm still on a one woman show, but every month, every six weeks, there's a new show. And I just moved into this beautiful new space that Jeff Edwards partnered with me on again. Like I have a space that is so spectacular. You have to come see. The, I, I can't believe it. Yeah. There's a lot there I want to jump in on. One of the things is just how developers have finally recognized the importance of, of I'll just say, creativity and energy mm-hmm. and partnering with people like you. Jeff is a great developer who really gets it and cares deeply about art. A lot of people are sort of coming to it out of necessity and they don't really truly value it. I happen to really love art and artists. And so we have, you know, authentically wanted to express that in our communities. And it seems to be coming more of a, thank you. And it's becoming more popular, trendy, and, and that's good. That's a good thing. But going back to the kind of joy for everybody. I like the fact that you did that anyway, despite the conventional wisdom. I'm growing more and more of the belief that those things just really aren't so true, you know, that people say, mm-hmm. right? The, the kind of group think there around, well, you got to focus and you've got to specialize and nobody ever does it this way and you can't make it that way and it's too big of an audience. And if you don't know who you're speaking to, yeah, you do actually know who you're blah, speaking blah, to. Blah, right? Like, yeah. just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It right. Uh, you know, and maybe I, there's more opportunity over there because nobody's doing it that way. Well, you know, we'll see. And again, I mean, I spent two hours this morning working on converting a website domain. Don't ask. I was so frustrated. And I used to have teams of people. I literally would just send an email. And a team of people would go do things, which was mm. kind of fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here I am. 
but my new website is live and I am like the proudest I have been mm. in months. I'm like, oh my God, I figured it out, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just in that on every front, whether it's my website, whether it's which artists to bring on the roster. Every artist is a gamble. Yeah. And I represent artists the same way I buy artists in my or buy for myself and collect. I have to get a little bit in want and make sure nobody else gets it, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about art. They don't all hit, you know, and I have to stop. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. This is a little more maybe of a philosophical question about art. Yes. How do you know what is going to be marketable and what's going to sell? And how do you kind of look at that different or the same as to just like, I don't know what you love or, you know, I guess, how do people know what's good, right? Like what makes art good? You know, is it like, I'm a painter as a, just a side hustle, not a hustle, a hobby. Abstract or figurative or? Abstract. And it's sort of just a giant mess. And I don't really care uh, what it looks like when I'm doing it, but then I actually do care. And that's been a whole journey for me. And and the idea of like, well, what's good? How do you look at something and say, well, that's good? Because it seems so subjective. And yet there ultimately becomes some, whether it be technique or group think or right people rally around yeah. certain artists talk to me just a little bit about how you decide and what you think about the idea of like art being good well i think i probably look at it and sort of it, it, from two different perspectives right one is the execution the technical execution there's an artist in my gallery who uses sequins and beads and the, there's a piece that has 32,000 pieces and that she puts it together by hand so you look at it and you know that she did it by hand and you're like execution right like it's undeniably impressive to me for a buyer who is not in the investment, right? People who aren't donating to museums and buying blue chip artists because they're going to then sell, right? That's a different, that's a different kind of scheme. But for me, the most important thing is how it makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And you, for reasons you won't know, or an artist may not even know, you look at a piece of art and you feel something and it's powerful and you keep thinking about it and you think about it the next day, you're still thinking about it a week later. That's the part that's really hard to quantify, but there's a part of storytelling that goes with it. Whenever I talk about artists, I talk a little bit about who they are and what they're trying to express, but and how, and how it connects with someone who's perceiving or looking at a piece of art. That's sort of where the magic happens. And the perfect, the sweet spot is when the execution is undeniably strong and it provokes a powerful emotional response. That's, mm-hmm. those are your like winners. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> but it's not, listen, I have had goose eggs and that's the worst for a gallerist. You, lo- you open a show, you love it, you put it up, you're so excited, you're doing the marketing and you have the opening and everybody comes. And there's not a single red dot. You're like, mm. shit, I'm not good at this. Mm-hmm. But I've had a couple of goose eggs, and three and 
past years. And I still believe in the work. Yeah. And yeah. I've sold some of the pieces after the show. So it's a tough business. Sure. Well, you're not going to get it right all of the time. I don't care what business you're yeah. in, you know, no. not if you're, not if you're trying, you know, and art is certainly one of those things where you don't always know what people are going to respond to. And just because you love it, and maybe there's a lot of people like you that would love it, but did they come through the door? Yes. You know, it's, it's all, it's, a lot of variables. Yeah. So what else should we know about you and the gallery? Anything else you want to share with us as we start to wrap up? No. I mean, I think if people are listening, I would love to have people follow along on Instagram. I'm usually, I post things daily. I announce new shows. I also have an email list, but if you're, if you're following me on Instagram, you know what's happening. And I'm going to start experimenting with some different type of events. The mm-hmm. space is next to a phenomenal restaurant that will be open called Spec. Mm-hmm. And uh, Spec will be open for lunch and dinner. So I, I'm just really excited to be part of this sort of emerging downtown. Mm-hmm. And right now, I feel a little bit like the canary in the coal mine, but you know, I'm committed to it. And again, I, I feel so fortunate to be in Columbus and be part of the Columbus arts community because there's a lot of magic happening. Yeah. It's a beautiful community and it is filled with artists and people who love art. And it is a good thing to be a part of. And it's great that you are doing what you're doing. And it's certainly important for that to happen in a downtown environment. And so I'm, really appreciative of what you are doing, what Jeff's doing, and all the heavy lifting that has to happen, the trust, the commitment before these things are obvious. You know, it's a little easier to go into the short north and open a gallery knowing the foot traffic's there, although the rents are probably making that hard now. But to go into downtown when it's up and coming and and really set the tone and plant that flag is commendable. So Thank you for that. And thank you for taking some time to share your story with me. And let's collaborate. I'd love to see if we could do some stuff over at Gravity and kind of send um, traffic back and forth. Absolutely. I would love it. And thank you. Thank you for everything that you do for the community and for these podcasts. I think the more people hear stories about where people are and some of the challenges and things that you can overcome, like that's, it's really, it's very valuable. So thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for that. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.